Welcome to Answers That Count. If you own a business, you can count on us to give you the answers you need to succeed in all aspects of your business. And now, here's your host, Charles Musgrove. Welcome back, everyone. This is Answers That Count. I am your host, Charles Musgrove, and thank you for joining us for another exciting show. Yes, it is November the 20th, 2020, so we are making it through the this 2020 year. And we're going to talk a little bit of, bit of economics today. But before we get started, I'd like for you to subscribe to the show and hit the notification button if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, we're also on Roku TV and Amazon Fire, so check us out there. And you know we're on all your favorite podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. So whatever your favorite platform is, we're there. So check us out, subscribe to us, hit the subscribe button. And if you're watching this, leave us some comments in the uh in the notes and we'll get back to you on that so be sure and subscribe and hit the alert button and today we're going to talk economics again yes we've made economics exciting here on answers that count and we have returning guest professor joe calhoun from fsu thanks again joe for joining us hey it's great to be here always love talking with you charles all right we uh we do our best to make economics exciting i think we do a great job of, of that too I'd like to think so. Hopefully your listeners do too. That's right. So we are, I'm going to prop your book. We've got uh, Common Sense Economics, and we're talking the third edition, which Joe is a, is a co-author on this book. So, Professor, give us a little history on this book and some exciting news about what's coming out on the next edition in the future. Well, as the name suggests, we're in the third edition, so I got to give a lot of credit to my good friend and colleague Jim Gortney here at Florida State. He teamed up with Rick Stroop many years ago and printed the first edition. It was a lot smaller, didn't cover as much material, but it was a great way to get people thinking about economics. And over the years, they added Dwight Lee, who was one of my mentors at the University of Georgia, and then my other good friend, Tony Ferrini, and they tacked on the personal finance section at the end in the second edition. And then I was brought on for the third edition to beef up that uh, personal finance and make a few other adjustments along the way. And, you know, any book, uh, when you're talking about politics and economics, doesn't necessarily get stale, but, you know, there's a few things that always need a little refreshing. So I was just added to uh, be that refresher and then develop some curriculum so we could get the book in front of high school and college students. And we tagged it the third edition. Uh, it's now, it was printed in 2016, so it needs another refresh. So we're looking in um, spring of 21 to roll up our sleeves and start doing some refresh. And then later in the year 21, we should have the fourth edition out. Well, good. That will, uh, you know, with all this happened in 2020, that is both uh, from the political standpoint as well as well as economics. Uh, those two really intersected in 2020. So you should have a lot of good material to present in the book. Yeah, exactly. A lot of new things happening. You know, obviously pre-COVID, we had a, a roaring economy. COVID struck that down and, and how we respond to that and the interaction between the regular citizen and government uh, has changed dramatically. And then, of course, how we recover from COVID. So that's the reason we wanted to wait until spring 21. We wanted to get at least 
partway through, or hopefully we can turn the corner from COVID, get a vaccine out and get people healed up and, and get the economy starting to return to normal. But there's still a lot of the story from the COVID pandemic that's going to be yet to be played out. And we want to capture that. So that's the reason we're delaying until 21 to really get started with the changes for the fourth edition. Good. I look forward to that. You know, thinking about all that's happened in, in 2020, you could probably devote an entire book to politics and economics uh, based on the case study of 2020. Yeah, it, it's been fascinating just to see the response of government, both from a health policy point of view and from an economic policy and, and how really f for the first time in, in in centuries, maybe that those two have really come together, right? In, in terms of you know the, the the health of the of the United States has dramatically impact the economy, right? And vice versa. Yeah, it is. And uh, you know, this week we got the news that Pfizer has uh, their their COVID vaccine ready to go to the market. So they're seeking FDA emergency approval on that, and the the uh, approval rate or the efficacy of that drug is like 90, almost 95%. So that's an incredible uh, percentage. Yeah, that was some really good news. And, and since then, two other companies come out with very similar results. So we, we've got a lot to be optimistic about. And now it's just being patient and figuring out who's going to get the vaccine first and how quickly we can get it out. But there's, there's a lot of optimism out there right now. A lot of optimism and if we have time, we can come back and talk about the effect of uh, regulations on both the, the economy, how, re how relieving those, those regulations has, could have had an effect on the speed of, of which they got these drugs, uh, a vaccine created in less than a year. So it's pretty phenomenal to see that, that result. I think it's uh, unheard of to have a, a vaccine created that fast and ready for market. So uh, the best is yet to come. I'm sure that'll be... Uh, distribution of that will begin within weeks and then to the masses uh, probably within months. So uh, I know they're going to target the uh, those that are most vulnerable up front and then it'll be available for the masses after that. So uh, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, it's really been a lot in 2020 on the intersection of politics and economics. And one of the items that we're going to talk about today is is a subject matter that's been on the federal level, on the, the state level, and in some cities down to the city level. And we're talking the minimum wage. So, uh, you know, the minimum wage has been 8 or $9, uh, depending on what state or locality that you're in. But in the state of Florida, this has really hit home uh, in the November elections that we just had. But in the state of Florida, they passed uh, Amendment 2, which was the increase in the minimum wage to uh, eventually to $15 per hour. So that is, you know, that's a pretty dramatic change in what, in what the uh, minimum wage is going to be in the state of Florida. And the people that oppose that have, have talked about the, the ripple effect and the unintended consequences of, of what that, that increase would be. And lo and behold, Joe, there is, uh, in this book that we're talking about, there's a section on the minimum wage. So let's, uh, I, I thought it was very interesting to to read this and see how the the overlay of the political discussion those those that were opposed to the a passing of Amendment Two and those that were for it and how your book is was uh, was written well before this ever became a a ballot initiative in Florida but how the the uh, 
I would say economics and those that wrote this book were very objective and non-biased when they wrote it and the the viewpoint that that truly uh, what true economists would have as the perspective of the effect of this uh, wage increase, the minimum wage increase. Yeah, and, and that's our point throughout the book, because we're trying to be fair and objective. Some people would say balance. What we're trying to do in, in the overall theme of the book is just give people some really good basic economics to think about. And we're not trying to dictate good or bad, better than, worse than. We're just trying to get people to understand at the fundamental level of economics, choices are all about trade-offs. And minimum wage is what we call a price control that is, the market would come up with a price, and then the government says, well, I don't like that price, so I'm going to pass a law to control it. I'm either going to force it up or I'm going to force it down. In this case, the minimum wage, even though it has the minimum in the title, is really a price control that forces that wage higher than where it would normally want to go. And the most important thing I want everybody to recognize is this is a very simple trade-off. What you're going to do, the effects of this are going to be to help some people out. Right. Absolutely. Some people who get to keep their job are going to get a higher wage than they otherwise would. And, and that's certainly going to benefit people. And then there's also going to be a trade-off in the opposite direction that some people are either going to lose the job entirely, their, their wage is going to fall to zero, or they're going to have their hours cut back. So even though per hour their wage goes up, their total paycheck might go down. And now it's just a question of which direction do you want the trade-off? And the voters in Florida have basically said, well, we want the trade-off in this direction. We're going to boost people who hold on to those jobs and we're going to uh, let some of the other people either have their hours cut or lose their job. And it's a simple trade-off of, of which do you want? And so there's no right or wrong here. It's just which trade-off are you willing to live with? Right. And the, I guess the, the bad part of that is where people are told that A is going to happen when, in fact, history tells you that A doesn't happen, but B and C happen instead. So if people think that they're going to have the same number of people employed for the same number of hours and just increase the wages and it doesn't have an effect on anyone else or any other prices is that's that's a false story yeah and and this is why minimum wage is such an emotional issue it's an issue that's been around for decades i mean we've been we as the economics profession and we as the political profession have been debating the minimum wage for decades right. i mean it's been around for a long time this is not anything new uh this this goes back to the 1930s uh when minimum wage was first introduced in this country and you're right in terms of this is just uh, a, the latest iteration of this debate. It's, it's been around for a long time. And now it's an emotional appeal as well. And part of the reason it's easy to sell and get people jumping on the bandwagon here is because it sounds so good, right? right, right. Hey, let's take these people who are earning 8 or $9 an hour and let's eventually raise their waist to 15 I mean, who doesn't want people to earn more money? I, I want everybody to earn more money. I want them to have higher paying jobs. The complicating factor is if you just stop there, then people think that this is an easy analysis. Oh, you raise the wage and people keep their jobs in the same number of hours and they earn more. And that's the end of the story. 
Well, you really have to pause and you have to think more carefully. And quite frankly, you have to think a little harder about what happens next. What, what are the secondary effects? What are the long-term effects? What are going to be the ultimate consequences? The initial consequences are really easy. Minimum wage goes up, paycheck goes up. Well, there's a lot more to think about than just that. Right. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting, you have in the book, you got some uh, expectations that that are likely to happen. So if you, for every uh, percentage or dollar that you increase uh, minimum wage, then you have fewer people employed or fewer hours being worked. Yeah, that's just simply the law of demand. So in the labor market, where I, as the employee, go and offer my services, I'm in the supply curve. As the employer who wants somebody to work because I have a job that needs to get done, I'm in the demand curve. So now we apply the law of demand to the labor market. So I, as the employer, when that wage goes up, I'm going to hire fewer workers or I'm going to have them work less. Instead of working 40 hours a week, I'll come cut them back to 35 or 30 or you know whatever number I think is right. So it's a, a very basic postulate of economics. When something becomes more expensive, people do less of it. Right. When you're a consumer and the price of your favorite item goes up, you buy less of it. Well, now we just tweak that a little bit in the labor market because now I'm the employer. When the price of doing business goes up, I'm going to do less of it. And in this case, I'm going to hire fewer workers. Yeah. And, you know, part of the emotional appeal is they would always compare the minimum wage to a living wage. And they would look at the that people that that were paid the minimum wage before a change were below the poverty level or they were earning a wage that was in the poverty level. So that just appealed to that emotional um, outcry that we should raise the minimum wage. When when you you provided some t- statistics in the book that those people earning minimum wage weren't necessarily the only breadwinner in the family. No. So the, the typical way to look at incomes in the United States is at the household level. It's very difficult to get the data from the Census Bureau and from the IRS tax returns to get it down to the individual level. So just think about your typical family. Uh, you know, you've probably done this a, a bunch of times because I, I know you have a son and, and I've got several daughters at home. So we file our taxes as a household. Right. We don't each individually. So we have household data. So that's the first piece that I want people to recognize. We're looking at household data here, not individual data. And when we look at that household data and we look at the people who are earning minimum wage, they are part of a household that is above the poverty line. And many of them are above the average income in this country. Right. So you're helping people who strictly from a financial and income point of view don't really need all that help. I mean, do we really need to take a teenager who's in a middle or upper middle class family and give them a higher wage? Again, strictly from a financial point of view, we probably don't need to do that. Right. So the argument is, well, you know, we're, we're going to help all these people who are trying to raise a family on the minimum wage. Well, that is such a small proportion, 15% or less yeah. of minimum wage workers are actually in a household with one other dependent and, and that are trying to make ends meet. So now so we're, we're going to make this a very small number here. I mean, most most of the workers 
that are at the minimum wage are teenagers and young people, early 20s, who are probably still in college or just recently graduated from college in, in that in-between job before they launch their career. And the data that, um, uh, that we uh, put out there is about half the minimum wage workers are between the ages of 16 and 24. Right. So you've got the young people and you've got, we have changed the whole system now if we've enacted this increase in the minimum wage so we've kind of upended the entire economic system for to only target 15 percent of the people that it that we've made this emotional plea for so only 15 percent are single that are supporting a household that are earning that minimum wage right yeah so we've made dramatic uh improvements and some people would say or dramatic increase in this entire system to help 15% 15% or less of the people that we're really trying to help. Right. Yeah. And it's, and, uh, you know, and, and we have to ask ourselves, is, is that the proper trade-off? You know, have we kind of created a monster to solve a small problem when maybe we could have created a different kind of income system just to help those 15% and still let the teenagers earn seven, eight bucks an hour to get their start with some experience and learn some life skills by having a part-time job. Exactly. So now what you've got is, uh, and I, and I think you imply this in the book and I've heard other economists say the same thing that you may have uh, fewer of those minimum wage people being employed. So the starter job that your teenager or your, your youngster is going to get where they, where the employer is willing to risk and trade train people those jobs won't be available, so th- That's right. it's, it's going to create a problem for uh, the youth that are getting started in their career, for one, and also it now makes that uh, automation, you, you put different economics on that automation system, that kiosk, or, or that uh, automation that replaces a, an actual person, you make it more affordable, so it changes the ROI on the on that automation that that the businesses can put in place. Yeah, and this is the other really important thing because the most important thing to remember from the our price system is relative prices are what drive behavior. So a classic example is I'm thirsty, I go to the grocery store, I walk down the soda aisle and I see Coke and Pepsi. The price of Coke is a number, but what's more important is that price relative to a good substitute. Right. So if Coke is a dollar and Pepsi's two dollars, well, Coke is relatively inexpensive and I'm going to probably buy most of that. Right. Now we go into the labor market. By increasing the minimum wage, we have dramatically altered relative prices. And what's the relative price of labor? Well, it's what you can substitute. Right. So now the automation becomes relatively more attractive. It's going to become relatively inexpensive because we've raised the minimum wage so high. So now what do people do? Just like when you go to consumer and you go to the store, you're going to buy the relatively inexpensive item. Well, businesses are going to do the same thing. They're going to say, hey, I can have a kiosk automated or I can have a person. Right. Now, what's relatively inexpensive? They're going to go that way. And we've already seen these kind of innovations and relative prices change uh, in the fast food industry. I mean, just think back to when you were a kid, you know, the simple thing of of getting the drink. I mean, somebody poured that drink for you and handed it to you. Well, businesses realize a much 
more inexpensive way of doing it, much more efficient way, was just to give the customer an empty Coke can or an empty empty um, um, cup and have them go over to the machine and put in the amount of ice that they want and fill up whatever drink they want. And now that's the standard way of doing things. Right. And why is it? Because it's cheaper. Yeah. It's less expensive for businesses to do that. So businesses are going to innovate. They're going to invent. They're going to automate when the relative price tells them it's time to do that. Yeah, and you, I think you picked out some examples there, and you've seen kiosk in places like McDonald's. Uh, they've had kiosk in the airport for, for a long time. So the technology is there. So now what you've done is, you, like you said, you the relative comparison of an employee and, and cost per hour to, to the cost of that technology or that machine. So I think we're going to see more of that. And I think the hospitality industry and restaurants is probably – uh, one of the targets you're going to see change pretty quickly because that industry operated on very thin margins as it as it is now. So when you throw an element like uh, increase in the cost of labor, it's really going to put a strain on how they make money. I mean, they're going to have to increase prices uh, and they're going to look at other alternative ways to to operate their business. Whether they they go to a, you go to the counter and order everything. Uh, it's going to be a combination of all the above kiosk, uh, reduction in number of employees, the way they deliver their food, all of it's going to change. Yeah. I mean, there's two changes that we know are going to happen as a result of this minimum wage increase. Number one, there's going to be less employment in those kind of jobs. And number two, we know that the increase in costs that the businesses are going to have to absorb are going to be passed along at least in part, maybe in full to the consumer. So one thing that's going to happen over the next five years, I guarantee, is when you go to fast food restaurants and other places that are dominated by minimum wage jobs, you're going to see fewer people and you're going to see higher prices. Right. Yeah. Now, again, we're, we're as a society in Florida, we're making a trade off and we're saying we as consumers are willing to, to see that because the benefits to the people who actually keep their job are going to go up. Right. And, and that's the trade-off we've made, and, and that's what we're going to see. Two, two things guarantee are going to happen. Yeah, I know that's going to happen. I, I had a, a friend of mine and client that, that owns uh, the Jersey Mike's uh, restaurants, the sandwich stores, mm-hmm. and uh, they've got about 30 stores they, they own across the southeast, and they have uh, in places that have already approved a minimum wage increase, they've already got it down to if, if minimum wage increases this amount, we increase our prices – this amount so they already understand the correlation of what they have to increase their their in consumer prices by based on what the increase in the labor cost is so that that's a definite that that will definitely happen and one of the things that i don't know if you covered it in the book but the when you have wage compression so if you already have somebody on staff that that's an experienced person that you're paying fifteen dollars an hour then you can't go hire somebody a new hire for fifteen dollars an hour you're going to have to move those people up that are already in place to making fifteen dollars an hour. So, you know, there's a there's an additional cost on top of just at of just that minimum wage increasing. You've got a wage compression cost that you've got to deal with also. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's just role play through an example right now. Let's suppose that you and let's fast forward to 2026 when we get all the way up to fifteen dollars an hour. Let's suppose that you already have somebody who's worked for you and is a very good employee for three or four years and they're at $16 an hour. And now the brand new person who hasn't had a job ever before, first day in the job, they're getting paid 15 
Well, how are you going to handle that as the boss? Right. I mean, that's a pretty tough message to give to the hardworking, proven, experienced worker who's earning 16 you're probably going to want to give them a wage increase or you run the risk of losing them. If you say, Hey, you know, it's so expensive for me to hire new people. I can't afford to give you a raise. That's a tough message to give. Yeah, it is. So that, that is uh, just additional cost that the employer is going to have to bear. And, you know, they're not going to bear it for very long without pass. They've got to pass that cost along to the consumer. So the, yeah, I mean, it's not like the, a lot of these businesses have these huge profit margins that can just get squeezed and they can still be profitable and stay in business. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, a lot of these businesses are, are working on pretty low profit rates, you know, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of five or six percent. And this minimum wage increase is going to evaporate all of that. And those costs are going to have to be passed along in the form of higher prices to consumers. Yeah. You know, I see um, I see the the shape of the restaurant industry changing dramatically, so that you will see fewer and fewer full service restaurants, and you'll see more fast serve, quick serve type restaurants where you have fewer uh, wait staff that's that's working at the restaurant, and more of that will be on you. You'll order from a kiosk, you'll serve yourself, but you'll have fewer uh, full service restaurants that we're used to seeing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have already seen this. I was in an airport last year before COVID hit, and it was a a sit-down, full-service restaurant, but the waitstaff didn't come over. There was an iPad at the table, and you just tapped in your order, and then a few minutes later when the food was done, you had a server bring it to you, and and that's it. So they were able – we're already making these changes. Right. These dramatic increases in the minimum wage are just going to – speed up that rate of change yeah i agree with you and i think that it's uh the industry is just ripe for for adapting to those changes quickly because we've already seen technology be developed now what's happened is back to the relative comparison of the of your cost alternatives now that technology cost is certainly just got gotten a lot cheaper without the price tag even coming down when you have the comparison to to uh people labor so it's going yeah, to make it and very And the other thing is, you know, consumers are already used to this yeah. because, yeah. you know, how much do we order on our apps now? I mean, how much do we use our apps? I mean, you know, I just went to a, a fast food place earlier today and I ordered and paid on the app on my phone. So consumers are very comfortable with doing this and they're not going to really be upset when they go to a full service sit down place and they have to order on an iPad. They're going to be like, yeah, I've been doing that all day long anyway. So it's not like we're going to ask consumers to make a radical change in their daily behavior when they walk into a restaurant. This is stuff they're already used to. Yep. And unfortunately, the people that uh, the intended target of this legislation is to help those weight low wage earners but what it's going to do is there's going to be fewer of those employed so you just have to wonder are they really going to benefit from this change and not only that not only will there be fewer of those people employed but they use a lot of the they use their dollar purchasing power for a lot of the items that you're going to see cost increases on so those are the people that eat more of the fast food and the cost of fast food is going to go up as the labor cost goes up. So, Joe, this has yeah, been yeah. There's going to be there's going to be massive ripple effects here, and and like you said, I, I think the bottom line is we're actually going to wind up hurting the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, unintended consequences. 
Joe, this has been another great episode where we have intersected politics with economics and talked about a real issue that that we're looking at here in Florida. Many other states and communities have already already adopted these these uh, minimum wage increases. So, thank you so much for being our guest today on Answers That Count. Well, I'm very happy to be here. All right, Joe. This has been Answers That Count. I'm your host, Charles Musgrove. Thank you for joining us. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, all of your favorite podcast channels, and also on YouTube, Roku TV, and Amazon Fire. Have a great day. Have a blessed week. Peace. Answers That Count is brought to you by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting needs, visit beanteam.com for more info. You can listen to more episodes of Answers That Count on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Or visit answersthatcount.com. 